Hello, Mainly fans, near and far. I'm in the middle of a move, so I apologize for this month of August having only this single episode. It turns out, moving into a place that needs a lot of repairs on it is a lot of work. Today's episode will be an oasis in this drought of main historical knowledge that I know your audio-based listening ecosystems have come to rely on. Sadly, this episode will do nothing to stem the real drought that plagues New England. But this episode is about a stem, or rather, a modified stem, the potato. Maine's most famous edible tuber. This starchy crop is a pillar of the state's agriculture and has had an outsized impact on the economy and culture in Aroostook County, where most Maine spuds are grown. A quick show note, this episode was recorded earlier, so it is too late to attend this year's Potato Blossom Festival. Next year, though. Today, dig in with us as we root out falsehoods about potatoes, starting with the misconception that the potato is in fact a root. So, let's do this. guests today are Kim Smith and Craig Green of the Presque Isle Historical Society. Kim Smith is the board secretary and treasurer. Craig Green is the board president of that same society. Kim, Craig, welcome to Mainly History. Hello. Thank you. It's great to have you here. We're here today to talk about potato farming in yeah. Maine, specifically in Aroostook County, which uh, within Maine is often just called the county for our mainly fans from away. And Presque Isle, I'm sure you would agree, is the jewel of, of Aroostook County, the, uh, the major city at, uh, coming in at almost 9,000 people. We, we would agree with that. Uh, yeah. the, other, the other towns could always uh, take issue, but they're not on this podcast. So. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So I'm glad that we were able to to get to you first so that you could lay down that marker. Absolutely. Yes. As we were uh, discussing a bit uh, before we started recording, I was saying that there's there's really kind of a a holy trinity of main food products in, in terms of what's what's produced in the state. We've got lobsters and wild blueberries, which many people associate with Maine, with both of those. But the third often forgotten Maine staple is potatoes. And Arusta County grows more potatoes than anywhere else in Maine, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. And right. can, I, can I jump in with my favorite potato quote ever? Please do. So Maine produces 4% of the national potato crop. And Aroostook County produces 96% of that. That is a lot. Aroostook County itself produces like, I'm bad at math, but let's just say 3% of all potatoes in the United States are grown in Aroostook County. That would be pretty close. I'm sure that there was a time when that percentage would be much higher. 
part of what I hope we can talk about today is not only the beginnings and rise uh, of potato farming in Maine, but then also the when and why of when Idaho came in and stole the crown away. Kim, you were mentioning that Five Guys Burgers, a, a tasty place, they even have restaurants in Maine, and they use Idaho potatoes. Is they that correct for their Idaho fries? Idaho potatoes. And if you've been in a Five Guys, you know that they have the big bags of potatoes sitting right in the restaurant where the customers are. And of course, in very large letters, it says Idaho. And so I always give them a hard time as long as I'm in the state of Maine for them to have those out admonishing them that we are a potato producing state and that they should be buying local. Makes sense to me. If we could begin, potatoes, they're native, not to Maine, they're, they're native to uh, the Andes. And they were due to various climate reasons, uh, the land route from the Andes to Maine. I don't know if it ever would have worked, but it certainly didn't historically. And instead, it was the Spanish brought potatoes out of the Andes. And then eventually, Scots-Irish colonists introduced potatoes to Maine during the 1730s, I believe, is the earliest records we have. That was not in Aroostook County, though. No. And of course, the Irish connection here in the county, there is very strong Irish background. Mm. And we all have heard of the Irish potato famine. So the Irish potato connection is very strong. So is it the Irish that introduced potatoes to the county in the 19th century? Uh, When do we first know that potatoes were grown in Aroostook? Well, Captain Henry Rolfe, who was born in 1818 and moved to this area right here, Maysville, which is now part of Presque Isle in 1840, he is credited with planting the first acre of potatoes in Aroostook County. That's in Presque Isle? It is Presque Isle now, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So for those who who don't know, what conditions do potatoes need to thrive? Well, potatoes need a, a, a growing season that isn't terribly hot. So the areas of Maine that first we grow potatoes in don't get the you know, the 100 degree weather and things of that nature. And we need uh, plenty of moisture. And, uh, and so our area really is suited very well climatologically to that being the case. So, you know, we have the lovely summers in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we tend to get a lot of rain, uh, although we use a lot of irrigation today uh, to help when there's dry spells. But those are kind of big factors that that go along with making this a a great place to grow potatoes. Are there any particular soil uh, requirements one way or the other, besides basic nutrients, of course? Uh, Are there particular kinds of soil that that potatoes do well in, or is that not relevant? Well, no, it it absolutely is relevant. The the area of the county here where some of the best fields is are called the, the Kirbu Loam areas. And so between Presque Isle and Limestone, there are some fabulous fields that just the, the type of soil, you know, it, it has an ability to drain. It, it, is in, it is in a lot of clay. It's, uh, I guess, the thing is growing up here, you kind of take for granted what potato ground looks like. And to me, just when I describe regular old dirt that you would go out and find in your lawn is something that many parts of the U.S. wouldn't find because they would find sandy soils and things that drain very quickly. 
and and yet here we have uh, loams that that allow for the nutrients to stay in them. They don't leach out quickly, um, and, and they hold moisture. And so we're very fortunate to have that, and that that's what leads to the many crops that have grown here over the years, but especially potatoes. After this start in the early 19th century, when do potatoes really take off as a, as a major crop in the county? Well, with the Industrial Revolution, things changed a lot as far as potatoes go. When potatoes were first grown here, they were not considered a table crop. You know, with the Industrial Revolution, they began to mass produce clothing and they needed thread. And for both of those, they needed starch. And of course, potatoes are a prime producer of starch. So in the late 1800s, we saw starch factories just growing and prospering like crazy here. One of our prominent citizens at that time was Thomas Fair, spelled P-H-A-I-R, and he owned 20 starch factories. But it was during that time that people started to see potatoes more as a table crop rather than something used for other purposes. Okay. You know, our potato farmers too, and I suppose it's probably the case with farmers in rural areas everywhere. They were very inventive and creative. They had to be. You couldn't run, you know, down to the local hardware store or, or the local blacksmith necessarily to buy what you needed. So when they found that they needed a tool, they would manufacture it themselves right in their own barns. Hmm. And we have one gentleman, another one of our prominent farmers in the area, who is credited by the U.S. Department of Agriculture with having invented the potato sprayer. You know, and the farms today, they're not 100-acre farms. We're talking, what would you say the average size of the big potato farms are, Craig? Well, well now they're in the hundreds of acres. When years ago, uh, you might have owned 10 or 20 or 50 acres, a 100-acre farm is huge. Today, that's a very small farm. Right. And, and so potato sprayers are a necessary piece of equipment. They're very large pieces of equipment now. They're as big as some of the large tractors. And so this gentleman... Excuse my ignorance. Are yeah. these potato sprayers, are they used for spreading seeds or fertilizer or pesticides or what? Yeah, it's, it's primarily a pesticide type machine. Ah, okay. And I, I always, this is going to sound funny for someone who perhaps has never seen one, but they look like a giant mosquito. Oh. Kind of picture, if you would, these small little puddle jumper airplanes, you oh. know, with the, with the wheels and the, and the wings. And imagine that that was something that you drove on a farm instead of flying and the wings were the things that actually sprayed stuff that's they kind of look like a mosquito don't they yeah they, they have big arms and yeah they're, they're, they're that's probably as good a description as any <laughs> but, but they're very necessary you know to maintain the health of the crop and so the fact that the u.s department of agriculture recognizes this man elisha parkhurst as having invented that that's really quite noteworthy hmm. So you mentioned these early farms were 50 or 100 acres. That uh, leads me to a, another question I have. And so in a lot of parts of this country, 
the kind of social structure and the, the nature of towns and society, uh, it gets shaped by the staple crop. And so, you know, tobacco versus cotton versus wheat uh, leads itself. Some of these crops, you know, landowners looked for either enslaved or, you know, servant labor or low wage. Others were, were more amenable to, to family farms or, you know, sort of mechanized agriculture. Uh, in the late 1800s, when, as you say, potato farming was really starting to, to take off in the county, what was the nature of the labor force? Is this mostly family farms? Was there a lot of hired labor, temporarily migrant, what have you? Yeah, so the, absolutely. We've always had migrant labor in Aroostook County and very successfully so. Early on, it was the native population and generally from Canada. And so okay. my young, my father is a young man. His uncle was a successful potato farmer in Fort Fairfield. And so he was pretty fortunate being right near the border, would hire a, a gentleman by the name of Saul Bear. And he was a part of the native tribe that was over in New Brunswick. And he would bring a crew with him. And called for First Nation in Canada. Yeah. And oh. uh, this group would come over. And this would have been throughout the 40s um, mm-hmm. and into the 50s. And so that, of course, dovetails with technology because early on, everything was, of course, entirely by hand. And then animals were employed and then rudimentary implements. And then as the tractor came along in the early 1900s, then things started to be a little more mechanized. And of course, like everything mechanized, it, it takes some of the labor out of it. But just to give you just kind of a little bit of information, uh, in the thousands of acres, so from the early times in the 1860s through uh, about 1900, we had just a little more than 50,000 acres in production in Aroostook County. Mm-hmm. And then that rose to a peak of a little over uh, 225,000 acres in production uh, by 1945. So when you were dealing with that many acres of potatoes, you had to have a lot of people out there doing all of the chores that you would do and then the harvest. So that's why, you know, through those years, and my dad was born in 1932. So, you know, through his teenage years in the 40s, he was uh, seeing exactly what you see when you look at these charts and graphs of production and how it, it was huge. And then they relied on, you know, help from many different sources. One of those interesting sources, by the way, which kind of ties in with the migrant workers and not having family workers in the 1940s, believe it or not, during World War II, both Holton and Presque Isle had POW camps. Oh. And the POWs worked the farms. So were these Germans or Italians? German, or? German and Russian. Oh, Okay. So after 1945, production starts to decline on the acreage. And the reason being is the methods and the chemicals and fertilizers and the sustainability of crops change. And so the production per acre grew enormously. And so they could now produce on the same acre what it may take two or three acres in the past to have. So some of the reduction in acreage isn't because people are eating less potatoes. It's just the, the, the land is more productive. 
So by the time the early 50s rolled around, we were in the range of about 150,000 acres in production. And then that has tailed off. Now we are back just over the, the 50,000 mark again, uh, where we were in the 1800s. But our productivity of the land is so much higher, they can produce on that land many more potatoes. So our actual volume is higher than it was, but our land production amount in production is less. So it's kind of interesting when you look at that, the yield per acre has steadily increased over the years. And today that's mainly because we rotate the crops and, and it's on a three-year cycle generally. So they generally grow some kind of a grain. Then they also grow some kind of vegetable. So broccoli has been the number one crop that is going with it. And, uh, and then potatoes the third year. So it, it allows the soils to be replenished. Okay. Last question about the laborers. Rooster County has a pretty sizable Franco-American population. And there were, there were plenty of French Canadians who migrated to Maine and, and worked in the mills. Uh, were there a lot of them who also worked on um, potato farms as well? A- absolutely. because and, and they were farmers. Uh, okay. And, and also and bought up land. Oh, yes. And, mm-hmm. and so the northern part of Rooster County that we call the valley because of the St. John Valley River drainage area. So that is primarily Franco-American today. And, and of course, we have a huge influence of Acadian culture, which then the Acadian word has kind of been bastardized uh, down to Cajun because many of those folks from the Acadian region uh, here in New Brunswick move to Louisiana. So there's a lot of families that, that are there that are, uh, that are also here. During this peak of acreage and during in the, in the first half of the 20th century, I believe Maine was the leading producer of potatoes as far as states, correct? I believe you're right, yes. Okay. And, and of course, when we were at our, our peak around 1945 for you know, our highest acreage years, we were very, very, very prosperous. One of my other loves is antique vehicles. And if you actually would notice around the area uh, on farms, there's still a, a great number of antique farm implements and, and trucks. And if you look around, the vast majority of those trucks that are still in existence today are the, are the mid 40s. So to find like a 41 Chevy or a 45 Chevy or a 46, 47, are very common because those years, a lot of land in production, a lot of money being made, the government, of course, buying a lot of this as well for the war effort. So, you know, it, it goes to show that, you know, what's left behind of that, of, of the buildings, uh, of the tractors and of the, of the equipment, there's still a lot of that around today because uh, of the prosperous nature of farming at that time. During this boom time, what varieties of potatoes is Maine producing? And then uh, I know that French fries did not really take off in a big way until after World War II. So what were the ways that Americans were, and other consumers around the world, uh, what were the ways that, that people were consuming these Maine potatoes? We're talking baked, roasted, mashed. What were the, what were the popular ways? Those, those are your most common types. And I would hazard a guess that they were then just as they are now. The russet potato is, is one that we're very much known for here. And 
if you're going to bake a potato or do most anything cooking with potato russets are just wonderful potatoes and they and they have been around for many years and i i kind of tell a story that's funny i had a lady downstate one time and she someone had told her that they should buy a shepherdy potato um and i said what are you going to do with it she said, well i'm going to bake it and and she would not hear anything of me um bring her anything but a shepherdy potato and of course all my friends that are farmers and different ones said you know, bake shepherds. That's get a, get a russet. So we said, okay. So I so I took a black marker. Somebody wrote on the bag, shepherdy potato. You know, when they would ship them. So I said, well, I just got a bag of russets, and I put a hyphen, and then I put shepherdy, and I said, this is a new new type, and you really should try baking this. And uh, so anyway, she became a real fan of that. So after a while, I'd bring them down every year, and and, and I I hate to see if she ever asked anyone else to get her this new hybrid because they, they don't exist. <laughs> uh, I confess, I, I don't know. I don't know about shepherdies. <laughs> but shepherdies are good potatoes, but really, if you're going to bake, russet is the best. So would shepherdies be what, for mash? Or are they those little like round kind of roasters or something? Yeah, they have a little different consistency and, and they're, they're also a, a fairly large potato, but they, uh, but they, they do better in, in cooking than they do in the uh, baking arena. But we also have some different varieties of potatoes that the local uh, school has worked with the, uh, the farm here that we continuously look at disease resistance and in different hybrid types that, that are drought resistant or insect resistant. And so there's actually so many things that have going on with that, that today there, there's actually a, a, a caribou potato, so named, that came out that is designed uh, to do many of those things. And so that has taken over some of the production here in the area now. Okay. I have to ask because it's, you know, uh, it's an often popular combo to do a, a lobster and corn and potato steamer and usually using, you know, smaller potatoes. And so fingerlings or the little baby ones. Are those main grown too, or are people doing that, indulging in out-of-state potato? Well, we see a lot of potatoes that are harvested early, and they're smaller, and we just call them new potatoes here. Okay. That's just funny. I was saying that, and I look over, and Craig is writing down new potatoes. (laughs) Well, and, and, and that really is a local kind of delicacy, is to get potatoes very early on, and they might be anywhere from an inch across to maybe an inch and a half, very small. And, and they have a very light coating on them at that point. The skin doesn't amount to much and boil them wholly, you know, don't take the skin off and then serve them with freshly grown uh, green and yellow beans and uh, milk. And, uh, and that's a very popular early, uh, I'd say in, in July uh, when things are starting to become ready popular uh, local delicacy. But, but the new potatoes are smaller and they are just perfect in size for what you're talking about, a lobster okay. boil or, a, or a lobster steam kind of thing. So the, the potatoes and, and greens uh, and milk, what's that called when it's together? Well, we actually, I don't, I don't really have an exact name of it. Uh, we just said new potatoes and, and, uh, beans and milk. Uh, you know, I mean, really, I guess that isn't very creative, but that's exactly what it is. 
but uh you know and are they all boiled like together or is the milk put on afterwards this is a this nope, is a local would, thing uh, i'm you, not familiar with yeah you would take the uh t- usually someone would get uh whole milk and then some and then some cream and then you would put that in your pot and then warm it up and then you would actually cook the potatoes and the beans and such right in the milk add some butter butter tends to work in most anything and uh, and then some uh, salt and pepper to taste and uh, yeah and, and then just kind of warm it up until you can tell when it's ready because then the potatoes will soften just like you do when you mash potatoes okay now oh, this is great there's another variety that's fairly new i believe and that's the violet potato okay and they're actually purple they are hmm. purple potatoes the first time I saw those, I went to one of the local restaurants that's fairly upscale, and they don't have mashed potatoes. They have smashed potatoes. Ah, uh, yes. And they served the purple potato. And, you know, being a lifelong lover of potatoes because of my main roots. Now, I didn't grow up here. I wasn't born here, but I spent a lot of time here growing up because my family's from here being a lifelong lover of the baked potato and the mashed potato, when someone put a purple potato in front of me, I just didn't know what to do. <laughs> I just kind of looked at it like, no, I asked for potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an experience and they definitely taste a little bit different. Yeah. I like them. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's been a while. I've been seeing them. You see a lot more kind of just multicolor vegetable arrays when you go right. to different farmers markets and grocery stores and such. Yeah, the more the merrier, I say. But a lot of times, uh, things that you're mentioning, like the small red, so they aren't violet necessarily, but they'll have uh, a white core, but a red skin. Yeah. And we call them the red potatoes. And and again, you can bake those and, and such. But those ones are the ones that a lot of times we will uh, cut up and use with maybe some onions and, uh, and, and grill them, you know, on a barbecue and, and use that as kind of a, something as part of uh, our a cookout. You and know? you'll see them in potato salads sometimes as well. Yeah, give some color to it. Yeah. And and those, um, you know, and some onions and uh, some butter and uh, then uh, some salt and pepper and, and put it some tin foil and put it on the grill. And uh, so that's something that uh, is a lot of time part of local barbecues. Yeah, y'all are mm. making me hungry now and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm craving the baked potato. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. I have to ask, because I'd like confirmation on this. I, I thought I read somewhere. Now we, speaking of, of cuisines and maybe uh, types of potato that took elsewhere. Um, but I, I believe I remember learning that it was post-World War II, in particular, McDonald's above all, when looking for potatoes that would uh, they would make for good and standardized, that was important to them, French fries. Right. Uh, eventually, it was Idaho growers that really jumped in with that with both feet. And that it was the fast food French fry bonanza that led to Idaho kind of defenestrating Maine as the number one potato producing state. Am, am I wrong in any of those details? Well, that, that probably is, is a good explanation as any, and really is volume. You know, let's face it, uh, Aroostook County has a certain ability volume-wise in order to, to grow these because we also have a huge forest industry, and we, we aren't 
we aren't entirely open and rolling uh, land that that's available for growing whatever in the way of vegetables and such. So, you know, when you look to the West and, of course, different areas of the West where there's uh, all kinds of uh, availability of land and then course the the westward movement of uh, of people you know yeah. that that moved to the west and populated the area so you know i guess it kind of makes sense that that these more easily farmed areas uh and 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 we tend to have a rocky soil they they tend to have a little different soil uh but in the last few years they've also tended to have climatological issues and with rain so actually our, our numbers have been very good on selling things. So oh, okay. it's kind of a symbiotic relationship in a sense, uh, you know, between areas. Uh, it's interesting in the trucking industry today, they will interchangeably buy loads of potatoes from Maine and from Idaho, ship them all over the country. And in fact, we, we thought one night in the middle of the winter, we were down at the local hotel and a gentleman came in and uh, he started out with, you're all crazy to live up here. This snow is nuts. And we said, well, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm from Texas. But he says, I drive truck. I just drove from Idaho with a load of potatoes to come to the local French fry factory. And he says, and then I'm picking up a load from here and I'm taking them back to Idaho. He says, I'd like to make a deal with the guy who had the other truck, he says, because I just said, Hey, drive them across town and I'll pay you what half of what they're giving me. Yeah. <laughs> it saved me a whole lot of time. Yeah. So, so, so they do ship things back and forth across the country. And, uh, and today users of that are companies like McCain's that have plants all over the world uh, that utilize potatoes. And um, my uncle was an engineer for them and traveled to England and France uh, and all over Idaho, Western U S and Canada working on different, uh, innovations that they had in their plants. And so this has become a uh, worldwide phenomenon of certainly French fries, potato cakes, and all of those things that uh, that we enjoy at fast food restaurants. Is it just that the russets and other potatoes that grow well in Maine, do those not make ideal fries? No, russets actually make very good fries. Either russets or white potatoes uh, tend to be the number one potatoes for french fries oh yeah uh, and and so so russets actually are a very good potato for that and you know we just uh interestingly for the first time in, in over 50 years had a brand new potato processing plant built here last year by one of the local families that is now uh competing with with the likes of mccain's uh which is a worldwide company because you know there is a a great demand for for that type of product and and other uh companies also have contracts with Maine farmers. So when very often Frito-Lay is, is one of the companies that, that buys a lot of Maine potatoes. And okay. uh, so you, you see those things that, you know, there, there's potatoes that go into production of things like chips and fries and all of those types of things. But then there's also the fresh pack potatoes that, that get shipped. And Maine, of course, is very easy to go up and down I-95. So you will find Maine potatoes up and down the East Coast, New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, all the way even in Florida, very often if you're traveling. Okay. And those are usually fresh? And a lot of those are fresh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So are we going to see a future in which Maine potatoes 
start elbowing their way into the French fry game in a more sustained way? I think they they do already, but I think the volume is such okay. that, that, you know, I think we're kind of where we're at. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. When, when you go to the grocery store and you go in the frozen food section and you're going to buy, you know, French fries. So yeah. you're used to seeing the brand name or Ida, right? It's true. Which, it's true. Those are Idaho potatoes. <laughs> but you can also find McCain's frozen French fries and likely... Those are Canadian and Maine potatoes. Okay. Can I digress and just tell you a, an interesting factoid? Please do. So here is an interesting use for local Maine potatoes. We already talked about the fact that in the late 1800s, they were used to produce starch for the mass manufacturing of clothing and thread. And from there, it segued into table product. But in 1978, the Double Eagle II was the first successful balloon flight to cross the Atlantic Ocean, and it lifted off from Presque Isle, Maine, and they took bags of Presque Isle potatoes as ballast. Huh. And, and, it, and it took off from a local potato farmer's field. Right. And, hmm. uh, and so, and it landed right next to a potato field in Miseray, France, after having traveled across the ocean. So, you know, I, I guess you well, never know uh, what, what potatoes can get used for. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that balloon flight held the long distance record until 2015. Huh. I'm glad that you brought up these bright horizons for, for potatoes. And so we, we've talked about the origins and the peak. And then the, the sort of rise of, of competing bigger fields. So in the last, you know, since the turn of the, the 21st century, what is the, the face of Maine potato farming looking like in the, the 21st century? What are you seeing that's new and different about this, this third century? Mechanized farms are fascinating. Yeah, I think, I think the thing is, is that no, number one, first and foremost, it's still family farming. They are very large family farms, but right here in our local area, there are still many local family farms and they are not corporate owned. They are the, the people that we go to high school with and yeah. we see the local diner that are, that are buying local goods and services and vehicles. And so the, the face of farming today is as much as it was, you know, a hundred years ago, it's, it's local people doing what they love. And, and it truly is a labor of love. And mm -hmm. these people truly wouldn't trade their life for anything different. And, and they, they still have large families, you know, having two and three and four and five children is still not uncommon amongst the farm families. And, but today they, they own tractors that are hundreds of thousands of dollars and they're all driven by GPS in the field. So the fields are spectacularly straight. Oh, they're beautiful. And yeah, they're just, they're, they're amazing. And, and you get in these, these vehicles and they will drive in, in, in exact uh, lines across the field and they will overlap a few inches. But the, uh, the vehicle you're driving, you might be setting up in the air 30 feet above the ground uh, and they're huge but they're very precise. So the efficiency of farming today for utilizing things like uh, diesel fuel to run the equipment, 
to or electricity or whatever it may be uh, that's employed in the course of, of doing that, they're, they're doing it in a very efficient way. And they're also able to do things that are, uh, they're also very uh, economically and ecologically sound. So farming today is entirely different business than it was because the people that are running it are versed in many different things. And like every other industry, they've got a computer sitting next to it. And, and if you have never seen a potato field in bloom, they are absolutely gorgeous. Hmm. So the different varieties, um, and again, you'll have to excuse my ignorance because I can't tell you what every color, but there are varieties of pink and blue and, and white and, and purple. Yeah, and, and so... And, and very often they'll have a very small yellow puffy center with, with flowers uh, of different petals uh, colors around it. So they are very, very striking. And we celebrate that. In fact, we're going on how many years now? 70 some years it's of the this. Maine Potato Blossom Festival, which is coming up in July. Yeah. So oh. my, my, my aunt was the first recognized, I guess, uh, potato blossom queen uh, in 1947. And, uh, and that, course is about the peak of the industry here so that is something that uh, all the area towns miss Prescott and miss caribou and miss mars hill and so on and so forth and they all compete or the potato blossom queen uh, which is crowned the midweek of july and then they spend the year traveling around the country uh, with uh, different uh, representatives of the potato industry to uh, promote main potatoes right and oh, then okay. go to miss maine that go on to compete in this main. Huh. What are some other impacts that the prominence of potato has had on kind of culture or, or social life in uh, Arusta County communities like Presque Isle? Oh, absolutely. There are many different ways that that, that has impacted. So uh, as a commercial venture, you actually see places like Maine Farmers Exchange. You want to explain what MFX is? Uh, companies such as this are actually potato brokers, and so they they are on the phone buying and selling loads of potatoes uh, as a commodity, very much like you would see uh, soybeans. You know, are, are oftentimes the thing that's talked about the most on the markets. But uh, potatoes are sold in much the same way as a commodity and traded all over the country, and then they coordinate the uh, trucking uh, of them as well as the sales. So that is one local type of business that you just wouldn't see anywhere. But we're very fortunate because it's also a fairly lucrative business because they tend to be the middleman uh, and they tend to, to make some profits. And, and they're very generous in the community, uh, giving back to different organizations. One thing that I think makes us very, very unique is the fact that our school revolves around potato harvests. And so we, like most schools, will wait and go back uh, much later, our schools will start at the end of August and will run for about four weeks and then we'll, we'll get out and then we'll have a three-week harvest recess. And so when other schools are just kind of getting going, we are getting out for a three-week recess and then the, uh, the school age uh, older kids traditionally would work in the fields uh, and, and on the mechanized equipment later, like the harvesters and things of that nature. But our potato industry is very important to the area. And part of the, uh, the staffing is young people. 
And so they do let schools out here uh, for the three-week harvest. This is what, like early October? Yeah. Oh, September, so, so September yeah. into October. So, right, okay. so yeah, so right kind of usually by the time the, the first week of September rolls around between that and, and uh, end of September, we're on harvest recess. Okay. And, you know, when I was younger, of course, we were participating in in, in that because so too young. But my parents, oftentimes, we'd go on a vacation and people will look at you and they say, why aren't you in school? And mm-hmm. you explain to them that we didn't have any school right now, that we're on harvest recess. And they, they would just be amazed because it, uh, it truly is a northern Maine unique item in the school year. This has been great. So as we wrap up here, I'd like to ask a bit about just uh, since you're, you're big wheels at the Presque Isle Historical Society, what events or exhibits or activities do you have on offer this year, starting in, in August? During summer, that's really our active season up here. And we have an antique trolley, which runs tours all summer long on a regularly scheduled basis. And as we start coming up on the later months of summer, we have some fascinating events coming up. We have the amazing mystery history tour. And that goes on Labor Day. And we take people to things around town that they may not realize even existed, like the old foundation of the ice harvesting factory when we harvested ice out of the stream or where the foundation is for the turnabout for the train that first came to town in 1881 and didn't continue on through but turned around and went back to where it came from and um, the model a chassis that's in the stream and just all kinds of interesting unusual things and as we get closer into September, we also will have a heritage festival where we, for the day, do demonstrations of old-time pioneer skills like candle making and handkerchief doll making and blacksmithing and things of that nature. But we have a very robust tour and presentation schedule, and anyone can go find that out on our website at pihistory.org. Great. We will be sure to post those links up on our uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds. Thank you. Yeah. And the other thing too that that I that I will tell you has become rather a interesting item. And and I throw this out because in the fall, very oftentimes weddings, of course, go on throughout the summer. But a lot of times, people kind of plan for fall weddings because they're so beautiful. And one thing that has been very unique uh, in the last couple of years is they come to this idea of potato bars at the weddings. And mm-hmm. so they basically make a mashed potato mix where they, uh, where they take fresh potatoes uh, that, uh, that, are, that are harvested and they make them into a mashed potato. And then they serve them in small cups or dishes. And then they give you all of the different toppings that you can possibly think of. from. Oh, I was at a wedding that had those. They were Whatever. great. And, yeah, they they and served them uh, in like champagne flutes or something. Yeah. It was great. And, and I think it's a fantastic thing. So, you know, if you're think, trying to think of a neat thing to do at a wedding, it's a great way to support your main economy and have something that's really different. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. We know that the Presque Isle Historical Society has a lot of great stuff on offer. What is something that somebody else, be it an organization or a, a museum or an author, uh, is up to that you would like to 
share with our audience you think they should know about? So the, the other uh, interesting thing in our area that, that I think is, is worth mentioning is we have a, a great history of the armed forces. And we had uh, both the uh, Presque Isle Army Air Force Base in Presque Isle and then Warring Air Force Base. And so during the course of the year, we both have the Presque Isle Air Museum has different tours and they partner with us actually with our trolley to give tours of the base and to learn about the history of World War II and the uh, Loring History uh, Museum for Loring Air Force Base uh, does the same. And, and the reason these are kind of interesting as well is the fact that, you know, we were one of the first nuclear arms sites in the U.S. for missiles. And we were the last stopping off point before uh, people traveled the North Atlantic route over to the World War II European theater of war because planes couldn't fly across the Atlantic Strait at that point. They had to make hops across uh, on land through Iceland and Greenland and in Scotland and so on and so forth. So, so we have a great deal of aviation history and military history here. And those uh, historical uh, groups uh, are putting that forth uh, on a regular basis and uh, have museums open. So we'd encourage people to work with those organizations too. Great. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to share information about that as well. Kim, Craig, Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully we will speak with you again. Thank you. We hope so too. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to rate and review this show on your listening platform so that people can find us and the fandom can explode with the force of a potato that you leave too long in the microwave. Join us again soon as we talk about maritime observatories on the main coast. That's next time on Mainly History.